This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. In episode 25 of the Hope Book Club, we're exploring some Australian non-fiction. We start off with Shark Arm by Philip Roop and Kevin Meager. In one of those truth can be stranger than fiction stories, this is the true story of one of Sydney's most famous cold cases. This murder came to light when a shark vomited up a distinctly tattooed arm inside a Sydney aquarium. <laughs> Need I say more? Cryptic crossword guru David Assel has written a book called Rewording the Brain. It's all about how word puzzles and cryptic crosswords can boost your brain power and improve your memory. And I've been reading Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu, which breaks down some of the myths around Indigenous land use in Australia. Pascoe argues that Aboriginal society was more sophisticated, settled and sociable than we've been led to believe. Firstly, let's hear from Shark Arm by Philip Roop and Kevin Meager. Anzac Day, Thursday the 25th of April 1935, dawned cool and foggy. It promised to be a superb autumn day in Sydney. As the 20th anniversary of the Gallipoli landings, and with many of the survivors of the first AIF still alive, it was a solemn occasion around the country. All week, contingents of ex-servicemen and their families had arrived in Sydney on special trains from country districts, and every hotel room in the city was booked out. The parade was the biggest in Australia. 300,000 spectators lined the route, cheering on 60,000 veterans. The Hobsons had opened the aquarium early that day and did a good trade with the large numbers of people in town, but by late afternoon, only 12 to 14 people were left gawking at their newest attraction. One of these was Narcissus Leo Young, a proofreader for the Sydney Morning Herald, who later recounted that he had been watching the shark for about 15 minutes when it suddenly became very active and commenced to flay the water with its tail, beating the water to a foam. He said it then swam rapidly around the pool a few times, bumping against the sides and sending water sloshing out of the pool. Intrigued, he followed it towards the shallow end of the pool and was within 10 to 15 feet, or 3 to 5 metres, of the shark when it stopped, circled around two or three times, and sank to the bottom. Young then described how scum formed directly above it, and in the scum he saw a human arm with a length of rope attached to the wrist. The horrified proofreader said that the shark then resumed swimming around the pool at its normal pace, but there was a frightful stench hanging in the air. Bert Hobson corroborated Young's account, stating that at about 4.30pm he saw the shark thresh the water and disgorge something, and on moving closer he saw the arm floating in the scum along with a rat, a bird, shark fins and parts of another shark. Hobson said that he managed to manoeuvre the arm to the side of the pool with a stick, and his brother Charlie called the local Randwick police. A grisly murder, a criminal network, and a tattooed arm vomited up by a shark in a Coogee Aquarium. If it wasn't true, you would swear it was made up. Shark Arm tells the true story of one of Australia's most famous cold cases, and Natasha Moore knows everything about this seedy side of Sydney now. G'day, Natasha. <laughs> I know a lot more than I did before. That's true. <laughs> Had you heard of this shark arm story before you read the book? I actually, so a podcast that I listen to sometimes is called My Favourite Murder. 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's these no. two American women that, who both love true crime um, and at least one of the two is a comedian. And so it's this kind of weird hybrid that you wouldn't think would work of a podcast that is both comedy and true crime. And basically they tell each other, they research separately and tell each other about these murders. But mostly it's kind of people love it. It has a huge following because they're called Murderinos, the fans of this podcast, because people really like the two women and their friendship and the way that they talk about stuff. And I went to their live show when they were in Sydney um, a a couple of years ago, maybe in 2017. And when they're on tour in a city, they like to tell murders about that city and this is the one so I'd never heard of it before but one of them was like I'm doing the shark on murder mm. um, and I was like what the heck yeah. um, because it's this insane story like the fact that it starts with um <laughs> this this shark being captured and put in what is at the time the Kuji Aquarium Baths. So these like enterprising brothers uh, who own the baths, every now and then they, you know, close it off for swimming and they kind of bring in a massive shark. And there are a lot of shark attacks happening in Sydney at the time. So there's a lot of heightened tension around sharks in general. We're all familiar with that public Mm. sentiment. So people come and look at the shark. And this one, a few days after they've caught it, um, the shark hasn't been doing well the whole time. It's been there in captivity and it vomits up a rat and a smaller shark that it was eating um, and a human arm. And, of course, the arm... Has I mean, so gross, it's weird, and so unlikely, isn't it? That that Um, was shark that was captured and that it vomited while it was in capture, and that the arm was tattooed. Yes, so I mean, it has this like very distinctive large tattoo of two boxes with Mm. their fists up facing each other, which you know was easily recognizable. So they were able to identify the murder victim because also the shark, the arm had not been bitten off by the shark. The arm had been severed. Oh, my goodness. So it was definitely murder. And so they figure out that the victim is this guy, Jim Smith, um, who's kind of a bit of a seedy player who's been involved in a few kind of petty crimes before and is part of this Sydney, like, underbelly. It's during the Depression. It's a lot of kind of people drifting around, doing a lot of... um, dubious things um and so you know we have and then and then that's not even the only bizarre thing about this case so the story just kind of gets weird and wacky ah. i would say i won't say weirder and wackier than a shark vomiting up an arm it, it doesn't really get <laughs> than that but the story continues to be you know just beyond belief so you would think that this would be a pretty easy murder to solve so you know who are the main suspects and why wasn't it solved well it's open to debate whether it was solved or not um in the sense that someone was charged but acquitted one of the reasons that he was acquitted is because there was no body Uh. they only had the arm they dragged the bay where they figured down at cronulla where they figured out that he was probably killed, um, but they never found the body. Um, so there's there's some issues with that in law. Um, but also the main witness, 
uh, or the main, the person who was going to testify against Patrick Brady, the man who was initially charged with the murder, he was also murdered. Um, well, that's not suspicious at all. <laughs> no, no. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of intimidation going on, people who um, rally to confirm people's alibis. There's like a very dramatic boat chase around Sydney Harbour that lasts for hours and it's just madness. There's, you know, high and low life. There's these kind of like rich North Shore boatyard owners who are trying to kind of protect their reputations but are clearly involved in a lot of seedy business with these kind of um with people like jim smith and patrick brady and so you get this real kind of picture of sydney life at this particular point in history does the book kind of suggest who is responsible even though you know it's supposedly a cold case oh yeah these writers think they've figured it out oh yeah confident so i mean i don't (laughs) i don't i don't know if i believe them entirely so there have been two books previously about this case um one in the 60s and one in the 90s um the guy who was writing in the 60s you know could still talk to patrick brady the man who was charged with the murder and acquitted and maintained his innocence until his death so he kind of had a bit of inside scoop from him maybe but he never admitted to doing it he always said he didn't but these guys the they say they have the full police report was released only in 2009 so they have a bit more information um and they're confident from like they sketch out a a kind of scenario for what they think is most likely to have happened and you know it sounds plausible to me um but i don't know it could go either way the thing i can't stand about true crime stories is how often the criminals just get away with it like sometimes the small fry are arrested but the big bosses behind them never seem to get caught was there any justice at all in this case uh no look nobody goes to prison for anything i mean well yes some people go to prison for lesser crimes Mm. (laughs) forgery that That seems to be what always happens I don't, I don't usually read true crime. This is kind of a new departure for me. Mm. Um, but I watch a lot of and read some, um, as you know, murder mysteries. Uh, and in those, you always find out what happens. I know. And somebody always confesses, right? Like after it's been, you know, yeah. figured out. They'll, they'll explain it. They'll be like, here's here's all the details you need. <laughs> and I'm so used to that. Same. About reading true crime that I'm like, but now you need to you need to tell me, like I know I need, I need it resolved. So so I read the Griffith Wars, which was about the murder of Donald McKay, who was my godfather and one of my father's best friends. And you know they just get away with everything. No one ever goes to jail for anything. I mean they know who all these people, mafia people are, but you know maybe some little small time dope grower goes to jail for a year, but everyone yeah. gets away with everything. It's so frustrating. <laughs> I think you have to um, have a taste for true crime and for unsolved murders and for that kind of thing. But yeah. if that's your jam, then you'll find you'll be able to cope with that. Um, um, so, is this worth a read, Natasha? What did you get out of it? Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I think people who are true crime fans, and particularly you know people who care about Australian histories of unsolved murders. Um, it's a must read for them, if that's you. Um, and I think also people who are interested just in the 
period. Um, there were just so many details of kind of everyday life that I just found fascinating. So even things like the way that the detectives operate and even how they'll stop off on the way from like arresting someone or picking someone up for questioning, they'll stop off at the pub on the way to the police station because people are, are constantly drinking, um, e- including in the mornings. Um, and, you know, they'll kind of have a fortifying drink on the way to anywhere uh, or to loosen up the suspects, you know, wow, a little bit. Um, and even like the way they, like the sorts of technologies they have and don't have, so they're constantly calling to like arrange meeting at various hotels and um, and even this picture of like the long-suffering women folk, you know, these men who are doing all these seedy things and they have these like, stalwart lovely wives and sisters who are constantly mopping up after their messes and you know worrying about them and like reading something about your hometown you're like oh I know all these places I know these suburbs I know McMahon's Point and I know Roselle and Cronulla and everything yeah that's quite fun Okay. Well, thank you. We were talking about shark arm, a shark, a tattooed arm and two unsolved murders. It's by Philip Roop and Kevin Miega. Have you read it? We'd love to hear from you. Book club at hopemedia.com.au or text in 0448. 402020. Now, we're taking a look at Rewording the Brain by David Assel. This is a book about how cryptic crosswords can improve your memory and boost your brain power. Cryptic crossword guru David Assel explains how your brain benefits from and responds to this particular kind of puzzle. Well, Natasha, I'm never going to get smart because I'm terrible at cryptic crosswords, so there's no hope for me. Well, everybody's terrible at cryptic crosswords when they don't know how to do them yet. (laughs) That's one of the things that this book does is it tells you how. It cracks the code for you. Are you good at them? I'm obsessed with them. I've loved them for years. My mum and I do them together. Well, for those who don't read the paper, um, can you tell us about David Assel? Um, So people might know him from uh, he was one of the hosts of Letters and Numbers, is that right? I've never seen it. Oh, yeah, Letters and Numbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So a lot of people know and love him from that. Um, My familiarity with him is, you know, my mum and I doing the SMH cryptic crossword, which um, starts out easy on Monday and gets harder throughout the week. And DA, or David Assel, does the Friday one, um, and the joke is that DA actually stands for don't attempt. It's the kind of really hard one, but it's so satisfying when you get it. I went and heard him at the Sydney Writers Festival last year and took my mum, and he was great. He just loves words and is very witty and delightful. And I got, I, I bought one of his crosswords beforehand and finished it, completed it, and then got him to sign it for oh. me. You're a Uh, nerd. You're a crossword nerd, Natasha. Oh, I totally am. I totally am. We're finding out a lot here. And I also got him to sign my book, which, of course, being David Assel, what he does is he writes an anagram of your name when he signs. So mine says, ah, Satan. Sorry, Natasha. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yes, I've never registered that that's an anagram of my name. Thanks very much. Thanks for that. You'll never get that one out of your head. That's like when someone told me that my daughter was born on Hitler's birthday. It's kind of hard to get out of your head. Yeah. No fault. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I was going to say, why did you want to read this? But obviously you're a massive fan. So uh, why would anyone else want to read it? I guess it might be a better question. <laughs> okay. Well, the, so he it's a quite an interesting book. Like it's interestingly put together. So it comes in three parts. And the first part is really all about the brain and what puzzles um, and lateral thinking does for the brain, how it develops it. You know, there's a lot of research out there about um, ways of thinking and of developing your brain and of the benefits that puzzles, not only cryptic crosswords, but, you know, crosswords are one form of this, have on your brain health. Um, And particularly, like, as you age, keeping you alert, keeping your memory working well, all that kind of thing. So he he makes a pretty good case for why you might want to invest in puzzles and also for the satisfaction of it, like what the experience of it is. And surprising things, like even um, some research suggests that people who spend more time puzzling, that what that does to the particular part of your brain that you use, um, it also gives you... Um, a better ability to process um, emotions, um, to deal with negative ones so that uh, people who do this a lot don't fight as much with their partners or what? That don't, is crazy. Don't stay angry for as long. I bet if my husband and I did a puzzle together, we would definitely fight. <laughs> well, you might have to do the puzzle separately. <laughs> But it would have the benefit of helping with your arguments. Oh, um, my goodness. That's crazy. Long-lasting resentment. So um, what else did you learn from the book? Uh, so part one is that, is mm-hmm. the kind of brain stuff. Part two then takes you through how to solve a cryptic. So if you're someone who, either someone who, like me, has been doing cryptics for years and loves them, mm-hmm. um, and I'm always, you know, I'm very evangelistic about them. I really want people to learn to do them because I think it's a great joy and lots of people would like them. If that's you, there's still lots for you to discover about it. But if you're someone who um, finds them daunting and is just like, what the heck is going on with, with this weird clue Mm. um he really breaks it down and goes okay here's what's going on you need to know the rules otherwise it makes no sense but when you do know the rules it's very satisfying so for me it kind of gave names to all of the knowledge that I've sort of absorbed over the years doing cryptic crosswords but I didn't know any of it was called okay so there's certain Um, tricks and certain approaches Yeah. So do you want me to give you an example? Okay. Yeah, maybe just one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We can do just one. Here we go. Okay. Here's the clue. Sign that clownfish is back. Okay. And it's four letters. Sign that clownfish is back. Here's how it works. This one is called a reversal. So can you think of what a word for a clownfish might be? I just think of finding Nemo. Nemo is the name of the clownfish. Now the clownfish is back. This is what's called a reversal. What's what's Nemo backwards? Um, omen. 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 Which is a sign. Oh. So is that the answer? So, omen. The answer. Yeah. Oh, See? that's not too hard. See? <laughs> that I mean, the first thing I thought of was Nemo, and then, but I wouldn't have got the reversal. I was thinking of neon because I thought of neon sign. So I was thinking mm. there was, must be some leap from Nemo to neon. Well, yeah, and see, this is the beauty of cryptic crosswords. So he talks about how there's system one and system two thinking. There's kind of the flash of intuition. Yep. And then there's kind of careful working it through. 
and every cryptic clue has the two kind of speeds it has the it has the definition mm-hmm. so in this case sign and it has the wordplay clownfish is back um and so you have two ways of kind of figuring out the clue and after a while your like intuition and also your careful deliberative reason um, yeah well you do get, need the foundational yeah. knowledge of clownfish being nemo to get it as well you, you can't do, just guess yeah. it you need to know that yeah Oh, yeah. that was actually fun. I can't believe it. <laughs> See, so maybe it's for everyone. Um, but anyway, that's only part one and two. Part three oh, okay. is 50 crosswords. It's like all these puzzles and the answers are at the back. So you can, and he like helps you through them. He talks you through. He's a delightful companion. Um, so, you know, it's actually a really fun book, even if you think cryptic crosswords are not for you. So- Have I solved you? Uh, I'm slightly interested, which really annoys me because I <laughs> I always thought cryptic crosswords were not for me because I, I just can never get them. But I guess you it- like words. They are for you. Okay. All right. Uh, you have a brain. <laughs> you care about your brain health. You need to do cryptic crosswords. That's, that's just yeah, but I'm is. not going to do them until I'm like, I don't know, a certain age. I think when I need to start worrying about my, you know, my memory failure, maybe like I'll start at 60 or something. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so really I think that um, this book would make an excellent gift for a lot of people. If you know someone who um, is a retiree or about to be or someone who you think likes words and would really enjoy doing cryptic crosswords, um, this book is, is is your way in. It's a really delightful path in. Yeah, cool. A great uh, ISO book too for something to fill up longer days if you're still kind of uh, keeping yourself a little bit separate, particularly you know for older people, for example. Now, because we still can't travel overseas, Natasha, I thought maybe we could talk about some travel books, some books that can help us with a bit of vicarious travel, you know, because a lot of people are getting itchy feet. Mm, this is true. I mean, even interstate travel is on the table, off the table. I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it can all it can all change at any time too, can't it? But um, you know, a lot of people I know had big overseas trips planned this year and can't do them. So you know, traveling vicariously is probably your best option at the moment. Have you read a good travel book? I'm gonna reinterpret this one a bit. Okay, okay. so because I've read some travel books, but there aren't really any that like particularly spring to mind. And I wonder if at the moment it would just be torturing me. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but maybe this is worse. i like, here's, here's what I recommend as a great plain read. Can oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Here's what I think. Sally Rooney, either conversations with friends. Okay. Or normal people. I think that her prose is exactly what you want to read on the plane because, number one, it's super easy. Like it's very easy to get into um, and to lose yourself in quickly. So it doesn't require, you know, you're kind of like a bit vague and out of it and tired and Mm. whatever on the plane. You want something that's easy to immerse yourself in. True. But also it's kind of deceptively simple. So I think her, the worlds that she paints and the, the, the psychology of her characters um, really kind of gets you thinking about your life and how you work and how you relate to other people. And so I feel like it's that perfect blend for a plane of this is really easy and doesn't require too much of me and 
this is making me rethink everything about my life and who I am. Mm-hmm. The problem with domestic travel, though, is you're not on the plane for long enough. You know, like if you're just flying to Brisbane or Adelaide, you know, you really. So I think maybe what we should do is read on trains. You know, we could, we could, we're allowed to do train trips, so you could get on like the Indian Pacific or the Ghan, and then you'd have enough time to finish a book. <laughs> you'd have think, enough time to finish several. Maybe that. Maybe that's when Proust comes yeah. in. Our previous episode talked about. Or, what about you for the vicarious uh, travel? Well, I have. I can't go past Elaine de Botton's The Art of Travel because you brought up the Proust book. I have to come back to this one. This is a great book for thinking about travel, why we travel, how we travel, how we can do it better, what we can learn from traveling. I absolutely loved this book. Another, the bit that I loved most, so there's some Wordsworth in it that I, I love because I love Wordsworth, but he, he does has this chapter on the sublime and one of the reasons we travel is seeing amazing things, things that make us feel almost that sense of wonder and worship. And that is something that we have been able to continue even though we can't maybe go and see Swiss mountains or something, but we can travel to beautiful natural places, we can get into nature, and so we can still have that aspect of the travel experience of going somewhere that inspires wonder and, and having that, I guess, the func- some of the functions of travel we can still, we can still enjoy. So did he, is there anything about reading his book that changed how you travel when you do? When I read it, I was quite young and I was going on my first sort of big overseas trip and I guess it just made me think about, you know, thinking beyond like the the tourist sites and travel as being a chance to connect with people in their lived experience in the place where they are. And one of the best things about traveling is understanding that people can live in different ways than you and so that can obviously broaden your experiences and help you even see your own life differently. Mm. Mm. A bit of armchair travel. Yeah, it's really good. With a novel at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Now, the other book I've been reading, Natasha, my nonfiction pick, this one has been at number one in the nonfiction, you know, bestsellers list for ages, and I finally got around to reading it. It's been on my, you know, intend to read book pile, I guess. Dark Emu, uh, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident by Bruce Pascoe. Have you read this one? Um, No, it's definitely been on my intend to read list as well. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, I think with with the whole Black Lives Matter, you know, movement exploding this year, I thought, okay, time to listen to some Indigenous voices and learn a bit more about the Indigenous experience. So basically, the way I would summarize what the book is about is that it's highlighting that Indigenous life before colonisation was more settled than has been, I guess, previously suggested. So um, Bruce Pascoe is arguing that Australian Aborigines weren't just hunter-gatherers, that they actually had systems of farming, uh, fixed dwelling, social systems, that they farmed in a way, native grasses, yam daisies, um, other native foods, and he explores the potential of those native crops, I guess, for modern day, you know, commercial production. He highlights things like, you know, the fish traps at Brewarana, uh, dams that were built, fishing nets, as basically arguing that Aboriginal people were farmers and that they did have a settled existence, that they could produce a surplus, they stored grain. 
one of the things that really struck me is that the historical records we have that record, you know, various aspects of Aboriginal life that, that come from, from European colonisers, for example, you know, they can only tell us so much because they're recording the, the way that Aboriginal people are reacting to European presence. So they don't tell us what the Aboriginal life was like before the European people came. For example, you know, the ways that their life might have been disrupted or, you know, for example, if they've moved into an area with their cattle and then, you know, the Aboriginal people are struggling to find food, they might have made a, a certain judgment about that, about about the sort of life that they lived, whereas actually it could be that it is the cattle that had eaten all the grass and therefore they didn't get their normal harvest. You know, I just feel yeah. like... It's very hard to get a complete picture because the observations they were making didn't allow for necessarily the reaction to a new situation they had just created. Yeah, they're already part of the picture that they're observing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think another thing that I got out of this was that the idea of judging sort of how advanced a society was or wasn't, you know, by sort of these Western standards that are just based on sort of one mode of development, it can undervalue some other aspects of a certain culture or a certain lifestyle. Like, for example, you know, the Aboriginal sort of system of land ownership, you know, like maybe they didn't have wealth in the sort of European sense or Western sense of wealth, but, you know, they didn't have individual wealth in the same way because the land ownership was collective and so they shared in the collective wealth. So, you know, measuring it by sort of what they had or what their jewellery was like or what sort of pottery they made doesn't really seem a relevant sort of criteria. So you wanted the book to kind of question more of those underlying assumptions than it did? The book is sort of laying out various criteria for how we judge the development of society, like do they have farming, do they have um, permanent houses, do they have build structures, you know, such as dams, or do they tame the water? And um, and then it shows the ways in which Aboriginal people had adapted the landscape and the ways in which they farmed and the ways in which they um, had systems for fishing and that sort of thing. It certainly gives you a respect for the skill involved in the way Aboriginal people managed the land and the resources that they had available and the way that they adapted to this land and adapted the land to their to their life as well. Um, so it, it definitely gives you respect for that and it helps you to see the misassumptions that people made when they came here and looked at their lifestyle. But at the end of the day, to me, whether or not they made pottery, whether or not they had you know, permanent houses, sort of beside the point. I don't want to judge how advanced or not advanced they were. What I think is more important is that we recognise different forms of Indigenous knowledge that we can still learn from now and to recognise that some of the early accounts were, you know, obviously very biased and we all have our own biases and it's hard to avoid that. But I guess if you just read from a number of different sources, it can sort of help you to make up your own mind about things. I mean, I guess because, you know, those ideas of like advanced or not advanced and progress and stuff are very problematic in a lot of ways. But there's also a sense in which like humans and human cultures, like this is what we do. We like figure out ways of interacting with our environment, of adapting it to our needs and to express our, like, humanness, um, our creativity. 
and that that's true of like every culture and that how fascinating to kind of recover some of like what we can know of the indigenous cultures um in this country right yeah and this book is really just a starting place it's a good first read if you don't know much about indigenous culture to sort of get a sense of what the life might have been like but i definitely wouldn't stop there i would read this book and then, you know, go on and read other books, you know, by Stan Grant or Anita Heiss or, or other people that can build on that knowledge. But read and not listen, is that right, Katrina? You have a good experience of this audio book, I think. Yeah, so I, I love audio books normally. Um, and, but I makes of us. did feel the production on this leaved a lot to be desired. I'm not commenting on the performance so much as the audiobook production there were mistakes in there there were some bad edits there were some bits that were repeated yeah I feel like it was done by the work experience kid (laughs) the work experience kid can be great (laughs) yeah okay well a not so great work experience kid whoever produced or edited this audiobook was not perfectionist enough for me (laughs) so yeah pick up the hard copy and enjoy it All right. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks, Katrina. In this episode, we have reviewed Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu Shark Arm by Philip Roop and Kevin Meager and Rewording the Brain by David Assel. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. And thanks for listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.